We are not gonna give up on the fight to decarbonize our economy, to make sure that we live a sustainable and just and provide and, and have a life and an environment that provides for all people, not just the privileged few. The effort required to decarbonize not just the US economy, but the world economies in order to stay in order to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming is massive. And with every passing year, the effort required becomes all the more daunting. Even with the growing political movement behind more aggressive climate action and a president who has released proposals that at least acknowledge climate change, it's a steep climb to actually enacting those policies. At a rally around the Green New Deal in 2019, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who you heard at the top, and Varshini Prakash, executive director of the Sunrise Movement, talked about the urgency of this moment. I want to be real that the next few years could be the last ones to elect a government that is capable of protecting human civilization as we know it. How many of you feel the weight of that? Basically, the stakes are as high as they can be to enacting substantial climate change legislation. But the question is why? Why did it take so long to push for climate action? What happened that we are just now in what seems like a last-ditch effort trying to change course? Today, a look at how much was known about global change and the efforts to delay action that are still with us today. I'm Ben Thorpe, and this is Eschatology. We begin in 1965. The Beatles have released Ticket to Ride, the Supremes are singing Back in My Arms Again, and The Sound of Music is playing in theaters. So long, farewell, I'll be just saying goodnight. Globally, about 11 billion tons of carbon will be put into the atmosphere just this year. At the same time, President Lyndon Johnson's Scientific Advisory Committee releases a report about pollution and the environment. But a part of that was about climate change and the growing emerging area of climate science. This is Benjamin Franta. He's a PhD candidate at Stanford University studying the history of climate change politics, focused on what fossil fuel companies knew about climate change over time. He says the report had an eerily good handle on emerging science. And essentially at that time, it, was, it had been shown that CO2 was accumulating in the atmosphere, that the source was likely fossil fuels and based on you know essentially fundamental physics it was expected that if this was going to continue then there was going to be a global warming effect at some point three days after the report's release franta says the american petroleum institute the leading trade association for oil and gas companies met for its annual meeting frank ickard then president gave a speech. This report unquestionably will fan emotions, raise fears, and bring demands for action. The substance of the report is that there is still time to save the world's peoples from the catastrophic consequences of pollution, but time is running out. One of the most important predictions of the report is that carbon dioxide is being added to the Earth's atmosphere by the burning of coal, oil, and natural gas at such a rate that by the year 2000, the heat balance will be so modified as possibly to cause marked changes in climate beyond local or even national efforts. The speech shows that the American Petroleum Institute had an early understanding of the connection between the products they produced and climate change, one that would only continue to deepen. 
Franza says our understanding of the next decade is still a little murky. As far as we know, not much happened from 1965 until the late 1970s. So fast forward to 1979. Mad Max and Alien hit the theaters. Perfect organism. It's structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. Globally, about 19 billion tons of carbon will be released into the atmosphere this year. Nathaniel Rich's book, Losing Earth, which charts the first serious effort to pass climate change legislation, begins here. In 1979, Rafe Pomerantz, an environmental activist who had been working on air pollution issues, stumbles on an EPA document that mentions climate change. Two-thirds of the way through uh, the booklet, he sees a passing reference to the fact that burning CO2 um, for decades and decades by by industry may bring about uh, cataclysmic changes to uh, the world and, and, and civilization. He basically starts screaming from the rooftops, and he goes around the government and tries to tell everybody uh, in a position of power about the problem and urges them to act. Here's Pomerantz. I was so shocked, astounded, that we were going to warm up the planet. I went to work on it. I found a terrific scientist mentor, Gordon McDonald, and he and I went around briefing all kinds of government agencies in the Congress to try to get the issue off the ground. It took about 10 years, but it happened. At the same uh, time Pomerantz was beginning his decade-long effort to push for legislation, oil and gas companies were beginning a different sort of effort entirely. Franza recently published a paper about a pamphlet he discovered dating from 1980, 10 years sooner than climate disinformation campaigns are thought to have started. And it promoted massive expansions of all kinds of fossil fuels, Offshore drilling, uh, opening up of public lands for fossil fuel extraction. It did mention climate change in this document, but it said scientists were split on the issue, which was false. Around the same time internally, an oil industry task force, which included API and Exxon, is given a briefing about the latest climate science. Slides from the presentation predict that if nothing is done to curtail emissions, by 2067, the planet could see five degrees Celsius rise with, quote, globally catastrophic effects. None of this was present in this public-facing document. You get a completely different message if you look at the public document put out by the API compared to its internal knowledge about climate science and what it was being warned of. The industry has received at this point at least two warnings that we know about showing that continuing to release carbon will lead to disaster. And instead of reacting to that, we see the start of what will become a massive disinformation campaign. I think it's worth pausing to think about what it means that the industry was being told that their products would bring about global catastrophe and not only did nothing, but worked to actively suppress and distort how that information reached the public. So for the next 10 years, emissions continued their trajectory, peaking at 22 billion tons in 1988. The same year They Live was released in theaters. It really boils down to our ability to accept We don't need pessimism. There are no limits. In that hot summer, James Hansen, a scientist for the NASA Goddard Institute, gave a now famous testimony before Congress that the planet had already left the natural variability of temperature. Rafe Pomerantz recalls that testimony. Hansen was saying, we've seen the beginning. 
Now, CO2 levels had already risen a good deal, so it was, in a sense, no surprise. But the data then began to support it. And there were other events happening in the world that supported the fact that climate change was underway. The issue was big enough that it was included as part of George H. Bush's presidential platform. Here he is in a 1988 campaign speech in Detroit talking about how his environmental policy will center grappling with climate change. Some say these problems are too big, that it's impossible for an individual or even a nation as great as ours to solve the problem of global warming or the loss of forests or the deterioration of our oceans. My response is simple. It can be done and we must do it. In November of 1989, the United States was set to meet with 68 other countries in the coastal town of Nordweg in the Netherlands to agree on a global plan for reducing CO2 emissions, the first of its kind. This would have been a full 25 years sooner than the Paris Climate Accords. Climate activists saw that meeting as one of the best places to enact serious climate change policy. There were reasons to be optimistic. Bush had shown an interest in addressing the issue, and a year earlier, in 1987, under the Reagan administration, the U.S. had joined the world in addressing CFC pollution, which scientists discovered was causing a hole in the ozone layer. But... By May of 1989, cracks had already begun to appear in the Bush administration's stance on climate. Today in Texas, Here's EPA Director William Riley taking questions from reporters about what appeared to be a change in the administration's stance on climate science. And yet administration officials were saying over the past few days that there are some in the administration who do doubt that, who aren't sure that the scientific consensus is strong enough on that point to warrant action. In your view, does President Bush believe as you do that there is no scientific doubt about that future point. I should perhaps have uh, confined my comments to scientific opinion within this agency, which was as I described it. Uh, as to the president's own view of the subject, I think he regards the climate issue as a very serious one and believes that uh, warming, if not already underway, is uh, extremely likely, if not inevitable. But as Nathaniel Rich documents, just a few months later, the Nordweg agreement fell apart. Uh, and at the last minute, the U.S. delegation, the most you know, powerful delegation, of course, and, and delegation from the country that's responsible for the lion's share of global carbon emissions, pulls out and refuses to sign any binding uh, pledge and any pledge to reduce emissions. In Nathaniel Rich's account of what stopped climate change legislation in the 1980s, he puts the blame squarely on the shoulders of then White House Chief of Staff John H. Sununu. Yeah, Sununu is the closest thing that we have to a villain in the in, in the account, um, and he, you know, he he has this position that now seems very familiar. Um, he's skeptical of the science and skeptical of the policy, and and feels that. Uh, there's some kind of a sinister conspiracy to use the science by sort of leftist globalist forces um, to undermine capitalism and, and growth. Rafe Pomerantz says he recalls Sununu as being arrogant about his understanding of the science. Sununu was a climate, original climate skeptic. I think he thought he knew the science better than the scientists, but he was, a, you know, MIT engineer, if I recall correctly. Uh, so... There was the beginnings of what became uh, a long period, and it exists today, of 
climate skepticism, denialism. It goes by various names. John Sununu presents an interesting figure in that it's not entirely clear whether he came to his conclusions about climate change on his own or through the influence, already underway, of the oil and gas industry. Naomi Klein, in her book This Changes Everything, talks about how the conservative movement and climate denial became intertwined. She describes a number of right-wing think tanks that sprang up in an effort to push the public away from socialism and communism in the 1960s and 70s. There was an ideological push, embodied by Margaret Thatcher in the UK and Ronald Reagan in the US, to privatize industry, reduce regulation, and limit the power of big government. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Klein writes that in 1989, these think tanks saw the collapse of the Soviet Union as a turning point. If all of this feels like too much to put on Sununu, here he is speaking at the American Stock Exchange International Investors Convention in 1989, echoing a lot of this himself. In the same respect accompanying this, we see changes on the economic side. Changes that, again, uh, it is not inappropriate to say, is a celebration of the Western commitment to the free market approach, the Western commitment to a capitalist uh, society. Basically, free market capitalism was on the rise across the globe, and that was a major win for Western values. Klein argues that climate change, a global problem that requires big global solutions, presented a clear danger to that economic order. According to Klein, we can see climate denialism as a logical extension of these ideological arguments. Sununu was among those who realized the threat that climate change posed to that order. In his stock exchange speech, he offers seemingly measured critiques of climate change research, saying he simply takes issue with some of the modeling and cautions against hasty action that could harm the market. But by 2013, in a speech before the Heartland Institute, Sununu is much, much more blunt. This global warming crisis is just the latest surrogate for an overarching agenda of anti-growth and anti-development that grew and gathered support in the years after World War II. There are ideological reasons why someone like Sununu would have moved towards climate denial, while at the same time, the API was pushing denial because it helped their bottom line. Here's Benjamin Franta. There's this ideological thread, and then there's the material interest thread of this history and they, they're intertwining all the time. The ideological thread, I think, is not purely ideological because it often helps out certain interests, some certain commercial interests. Um, but that happens, you know, th those are the twin threads of this delay history, and they're intertwined really the whole, the whole way. So as Nathaniel Rich reports, Sununu went to work on members of the Bush administration trying to talk them out of committing to the global treaty goals at the conference in the Netherlands. Uh, and ultimately, because Sununu is the most powerful person in the administration after George Bush, who's largely um, disinterested in the, in the problem, um, Sununu wins out and is able to stop, uh, pro stop the progress on this, this agreement. And it's not really fully understood at the time because the negotiations would continue for years. But looking back, we can see that that mar marks uh, the closest we ever came to uh, a global, a serious global 
solution. Rich says in his interviews with Sununu, the man takes credit for quashing this effort. I asked him at one point, you know, uh, do you take credit for, for single-handedly, uh, essentially your question, do you take credit for single-handedly destroying the prospect of uh, serious global climate policy? Uh, and he said something to the effect of, I would like to take credit. <laughs> um, you know, he's proud of his role in thwarting this. He still is skeptical about the science and about the economic um, questions. What's worth underlining here is how much time has been lost since this moment. Drill, baby, drill. <laughs> drill, baby, drill. So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and that, and a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry. And, you know, that whole suddenly America's like the biggest oil producer and the biggest guy. Uh, that was me, people. I just want you to. So. More carbon has been pumped into the atmosphere since 1989 than across the rest of human history. In 2019, emissions peaked at 36 billion tons, almost twice what they were in 1988 and over three times what they were in 1965. Emissions went down in 2020 over the course of the pandemic, but experts say they are already rising again. I asked Rafe Pomerantz what it felt like to watch all of this time slip by. Yeah, I think uh, as I reflect on it today, we've spent 20 years combating denialism, which means you repeat the science over and over again. But what's happening is the impacts are much more visible. I like to say there is many of them are in the rearview mirror now. They have happened. But the, re the reason is not because we don't know the science. The reason is this disinformation campaign that took hold. So one of the questions I have after listening to this history is what's changed? And are we still in danger of falling victim to more delay? I think we can track the two threads of this history, the delays brought about by industry and the delays brought about by ideology through to our present moment. In March of 2021, the Cambridge Energy Research Association held what it calls CIRA Week. It's a huge conference where energy companies meet with policymakers. John Kerry, currently serving as an envoy on climate for President Biden, gave a speech at the conference talking about how the administration viewed climate action. In it, he touched on the issue of carbon capture. You know, it's not that people, I don't object per se to, uh, the, to fossil fuel. I object to the byproduct of fossil fuel, which is the carbon. That's the problem. And the methane. That's another major problem emerging. So we have to be able to abate. Kerry's stance here is not at all dissimilar to the way that the industry itself has started talking about reducing emissions. The CEO of Occidental Petroleum at the same conference said, quote, we should not be talking about eliminating fossil fuels. What we really need to be talking about are eliminating emissions. And the American Petroleum Institute was quick to pick up on Kerry's statement. In a release, the Institute wrote that if the Biden administration saw emissions as the target and not energy from oil and gas, then the industry is a willing partner. But lead experts on the science of carbon capture say it's just another tactic from an industry with a long history of delay. We're talking about carbon capture, but carbon capture is a scam. 
It's the Theranos of energy. Mark Jacobson is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University. He authored a 2019 study looking at carbon capture and found that both carbon capture at the level of industrial plants and direct air capture reduced carbon emissions by only about 10 percent over 20 years. But the, uh, the fundamental problem with carbon capture, regardless of whether it's direct air capture or carbon capture from a plant, is that it always takes energy and it doesn't reduce any other pollutants from either the air or from the from the power plant. Proponents of carbon capture have made claims that the technology can reduce roughly 90 percent of the carbon output from coal and gas plants. Jacobson says the data paints a different picture. He says carbon capture technology is incredibly energy intensive. And before his work, no one had looked at the pollution occurring upstream of carbon capture plants. In the case of one plant he studied, an entire natural gas generator was built to power carbon capture technologies at a coal plant. Yeah, there are people in the climate community who run these simulations, assuming carbon capture works and it's cheap and assuming that it reduces 90 percent of the CO2 and assuming it doesn't take any energy to do that. And then you see you get a result. Oh, yeah, it'll it's necessary and it's helpful for solving the climate problem. Well, of course it is. If you just make the assumption it takes out 90 percent of the CO2 and you make the assumption it doesn't use any energy in doing so. Or the problem is when you actually look at the data, these scenarios are nonsense. So IPC scenarios with carbon capture are complete nonsense. They have no basis in reality whatsoever. The point, Jacobson says, is that the industry cannot be trusted to oversee projects like carbon capture. And people like John Kerry really need to learn about it and understand the problems and not listen to oil and gas people or carbon capture people because those people are deceitful and they're, they don't understand uh, the full implications of even their own technology. I reached out to the State Department for comment on this. They point out that the administration is taking an all-of-the-above approach to climate change, that carbon capture is just a part of a series of things they will be pursuing as part of an effort to reduce emissions. But I think trusting an industry with a long, documented history of delaying climate action to be an honest partner in creating solutions should give us some pause. Benjamin Franta talks about the importance of holding the industry accountable for its history so that we can better notice the delay tactics occurring right now. These companies today are still uh, a huge obstacle to effective climate policy. So there's still deception occurring and there's still this pernicious delay. And, the, and I like to say the damages are in the delay because in this case, Delay is not innocuous. Delay is, is basically death, and it's irreversible. So we, we have to move. So I think holding these companies accountable for their past misdeeds is going to help address their current ones, too. So that's the danger we face on the industry side. But where are we on the ideological side? Again, listening to the John Kerry speech at Zero Week, he talked about the importance of a restrained government approach to reducing emissions, allowing the free market and industry to lead the charge. And, and the result is that that transition is already being made by the marketplace, not government ordered, not regulated, but the marketplace is making the decision for people. There's just a clear direction that the marketplace is moving already. 
And, and uh, we think in the administration that if we build back smart, build back better, put the right incentives in place and work with the industry and, and we invite the industry. I mean, they're huge All of this to me sounds like the same limited government approach that's been pushed for years and years and has a clear connection to delays. But after the release of Biden's American Jobs Plan, which includes roughly $1 trillion for climate-related initiatives, members of the Sunrise Movement and supporters of the Green New Deal said even though the plan doesn't go far enough, it's a good start. Anders Fremsted is a professor of economics at Colorado University and authored two reports for the Roosevelt Institute, a left-leaning think tank, one on decarbonizing the U.S. economy, and the other about how neoliberal economic policies have delayed climate action. Fremstead says the American Jobs Plan represents an ideological shift because it sees a role for big government in grappling with this crisis. I think to a lot, I think it really reflects the fact that although Kerry still has this sort of language of neoliberalism, we're going to let business speak, business aside, et cetera, et cetera, there, um, I think the plan does represent sort of a break from that consensus and a recognition that we're going to need a lot of money for the government to direct towards different areas if we're going to decarbonize on the, in, the, in the time frame that we need to, frankly. Estimates from the Roosevelt Institute put the price tag for decarbonizing the U.S. economy at $10 trillion, roughly 10 times as much as the American Jobs Plan. But Fremstead says if the initial plan is successful, it could help incentivize bigger investments down the road. That it could be something that shows American people that we can make these sorts of investments. We can cooperate in this way together, right? Largely, not taxing the rich to some degree, but mostly borrowing money on important projects that need to get done right now, putting people to work on them. If that can be a popular political program, it would provide a, a model sort of for a much larger Green New Deal over the next few years. Not everyone is quite so convinced by the policy proposals, however. Climate activist Greta Thunberg, in a speech before Congress about ongoing subsidies to the fossil fuel industry, said she was pessimistic about lawmakers enacting the necessary changes. And it may seem like we are asking for a lot. And you will, of course, say that we are naive. And that's fine. But at least we are not so naive that we believe things will be solved through countries and companies making vague, distant, insufficient targets without any real pressure from the media and the general public. That fight against delay and middle-of-the-road solutions is something that you can hear in the way the climate movement talks about what it's doing. Again, here's Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. And I will be damned if the same politicians who refuse to act then are going to try to come back today and say we need a middle-of-the-road approach to save our lives. That is too much for me. We cannot, we cannot, and we will not accept anything less than a solution to save ourselves. And that's exactly what this is. For me, this history feels so close to today. I was surprised over and over again by how familiar conversations and old clips on C-SPAN felt like ones we're having right now. The way all of this feels like an endlessly recycled newsreel of stale talking points as scientists and activists beg those in power to pay attention to the reality of what's coming. I hope that this time can be different. That's the show today. I'm Ben Thorpe, and this is Eschatology.
big thank you as always to Ryan Faber and Ryan Hopper for both providing music for this show. This particular episode was a beast to edit. Uh, so huge thank you goes to Jimmy Hollenbeck, uh, Joey Payne, and Phil Russell, who all offered advice and listened to this thing multiple, multiple times. Uh, big thank you uh, for doing that. Again, ludicrous amount of uh, things to cite. So if you have questions about where information came from, uh, hit me up. There's a big long list that is going to go up underneath the episode and, and should be findable on kind of iTunes and Spotify or wherever you're listening. Uh, until next time. Until next time.